Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month, we hear from engineer Brendan Walker as he explains how he designs roller coasters to induce thrill, priming our body's innate responses through sounds, visual cues, virtual reality, and much more. This talk was recorded from our theatre at the Royal Institution on the 28th of February, 2020. You can get tickets for our upcoming talks by heading to rigb.org. Thank you. I'm Professor Brendan Walker. I run an organisation called Thrill Laboratory, which is a collection of artists, scientists, technologies and engineers, all of who have a passion for designing and creating and studying thrilling experiences. I like to think of roller coasters as factory machines. Factory machines which process humans and deliver an ingredient, thrill. Now, just as a machine like a donut factory machine can be assessed for the efficiency with the way it coats its sugary coating onto the donuts, so too can a roller coaster be assessed for its efficiency in processing humans and delivering the ingredient of thrill. But there's a catch. Not all donuts are the same. They like to be coated in different kind of sugary coatings, different flavours, sprinkles, chocolate bits. It's not as simple as one donut is the same, it needs to be treated in the same way. And that's true also of riders on fairground rides. Here are four subjects, four of my subjects, as an experiment at Alton Towers. Um, Riding Oblivion, which was the world's first vertical drop roller coaster. Has anybody been on Oblivion here? All right, quite, quite, we've got a, quite a hardcore section in the centre, and you. Um, so, because everybody responds differently to rides and ride features, one way of trying to understand how people respond is to understand their personality types. You can see they're all holding these folders in front. They've all just taken Marvin Zuckerman's sensation-seeking scale. It's a psychometric profiling test. Now, Marvin Zuckerman, who I like to say is the the grandfather of of understanding thrill-seeking, Marvin breaks down his sensation-seeking scale into four different subscales. The first, well, Joe Walker. He was one of the first X-plane pilots as pioneering breaking the speed of sound in the jet aircraft. Joe Walker would have scored really high on the thrill and adventure-seeking scale. People who like to go to unusual theatre and cinema and look at magic shows, they'd all score very high on the experience-seeking scale. And those who would probably burst out into spontaneous dance or song in public settings, you know who you are, uh, they would score very high on the disinhibition scale. And finally susceptibility to boredom, which is really critical to understand when you go to somewhere like Disneyland and you have to wait two hours just to go on a three-minute ride. So our four subjects all experienced the same drop. One of them had never been on a roller coaster in his life before. Let's just see what his response was. It's going to be all right. Don't look down. (laughs) 
I'm so glad I did that. <laughs> Thrill's good for everyone. He didn't go on a roller coaster ever again after that, but... <laughs> so, fairground showmen have known about their audience for hundreds of years. They know this tacitly because being able to entertain an audience and create thrilling experiences is big business. People make money out of this. But what can science and engineering bring to this discipline of creating thrilling experiences? What insights can we get from science? My attention was first taken to the much-reported thrill-seeking gene initially, the D4-DR dopamine receptor, which lives on chromosome 11. <clears throat> it was reported that people who have a polymorphism in this, in this gene, uh, a slight defect or a, an unusual aspect of the gene, can't process dopamine as well as other people who don't have this polymorphism. And the importance of the D4-DR gene is that um, we, when we're excited, when we feel pleasure, we create dopamine, and that is this lovely sensation of euphoria you get when you do something amazing. And if you can't process dopamine, you go to greater extremes to create more dopamine. And so the name of thrill-seekers came up associated with people who have this gene deficiency. I went and got myself tested. Um, I had my DNA extracted. I had the gene isolated. And I had it tested. And sadly to say, I am a sufferer from having a polymorphism of the D4-DR gene. Um, but I'm not unusual. In the UK, there are around 1 in 30 people who have this polymorphism. And in China, around 1 in 60. And in the US and Australia, the recurrence is around 1 in 20, which is sometimes explained um, by the adventuring nature of people with this polymorphism. And obviously, when the early pioneers went out to discover these countries, a vast majority of them had this polymorphism, which has persisted in the population today. But this really doesn't tell us much about how to design and create a new thrilling experience. Science describes thrill as the exhilaration or excitement in response to novel stimuli. It doesn't say what this stimuli is. And again, as a designer, this, this doesn't give me any insight. So let's have a look at one very specific um, experience, free-falling through space. A simple GCSE physics problem. So a body f falls through space over a distance S1 under the influence of gravity to be decelerated to come to rest Softly at the bottom, hopefully. Sounds like it might be thrilling, but how many different ways can we do this? How about being strapped to the chest of a stranger who couldn't speak a word of English, relying only on a parachute that you'd seen just 60 minutes earlier on a sewing machine? Uh, that was me, and that didn't end very well. You can see me afterwards, I'll tell you what happened. Or how about this high diver in Acapulco? whose only technology is probably a tiny pair of Speedo swimming trunks, and maybe a pina colada if he survives being dashed against the rocks at the bottom. Something a little bit more horrific. This woman was jumping from a four-storey burning hotel in Atlanta, Georgia, in 1947. This image went viral around the media in the US and in Northern Europe. 
It was exciting and thrilling for people who watched it, who saw this image, and particularly because this woman survived. She only broke both her ankles. So you don't need to actually be doing something to be thrilled. You can actually live these moments vicariously. But you don't need to jump out of a burning building to experience thrill. You can go to another hotel. This is the Tower of Terror, which is in Disneyland Paris, where you can get into a, a lift and plummet through a haunted, uh, a haunted building, be met with various ghoulish and horrific scenes as you come down. Much safer than jumping out of a building. But that wasn't the first vertical drop that, um, that was made in, uh, in Paris. In fact... Just as Monsieur Eiffel was designing his tower, so too was Monsieur Caron designing a ride to go alongside the Eiffel Tower. Monsieur Caron had proposed this capsule-shaped container that passengers would sit inside on seats with a sprung base, obviously to protect them when they impacted. And this capsule would be dropped from the centre of the tower and it was going to be decelerated by the champagne glass-shaped pool below. Now, <laughs> supposedly. Now, the ride was never made, but it has since been shown that maybe it would have been thrilling, but the passengers would have met their most certain death at the bottom. So. <laughs> but understanding free-fall, vertical drops, and how they thrill us is big money. It's, it's related to the, the, the commerce of creating and, and, and delivering thrilling experiences. I was asked by Alton Towers when they were designing their new ride, 13 at Alton Towers. They got into a little bit of a panic about how far should you drop somebody in the dark. I'll tell you a little bit about 13. It's a roller coaster which trundles around and then you enter into a dark tunnel and you're parked up you don't know what's going to happen. And then suddenly all the cars drop, suddenly, vertically. And they said, well, how far should we be dropping people in the dark? Uh, you've got 48 hours to tell us. And they had some ideas from the engineers. Um, now, drop them too far, or actually don't drop them far enough, then people aren't going to be thrilled. They're going to go away unhappy. Drop them too far, sounds fine, but for every extra inch of steelwork and engineering, it was going to cost tens of thousands of pounds. So they wanted to save money. Um, so what I looked at were statistics and experiments that other people had done, and I found that for the 95th percentile, that's 95% who would visit Holton Towers, that they would start to respond to unusual stimuli in about 0.7 seconds. takes us time, our brain, to understand what's happening. And, then, and that equates to about 2.4 metres in a drop. It takes 1.2 seconds for us to formulate an appropriate response throwing your arms in the air, maybe screaming, something like that. And that's a distance of just over seven metres vertical drop. Anybody who knows uh, 13 Alton Towers knows that it's just around five metres. And the way we shaved off two metres of steelwork was to give an initial drop of 30 centimetres, which precedes the, the, the drop that comes afterwards. And that helps to pump prime the brain and actually shortens those response times afterwards. So having an insight into psychology, it, it, there is a relationship to engineering when we're talking about rights. But this is just using science to refine ride to refine features on rides and to understand what's going on doesn't really tell us much about how 
to start designing. I mean, who came up with the idea of a vertical drop? Who come up, comes up with ideas of inverting roles? I went to see a criminologist in LA, in UCLA, uh, a guy called Jack Katz, who is an ethno-criminologist, and he uh, specialises in crimes that, where the only motivation is thrill. It's not for monetary gain, it's not for any other reason, it's purely because people crave the sensation of thrill. People like shoplifters, joyriders, graffiti artists. And I talked to Jack, this was back in 2003, and he said the only way to start to understand how people construct their thrilling experiences, essentially they're designing their own rides. Uh, for example, like this guy here who's a shoplifter. Shoplifters very often see their environment as a gaming environment where CCTV cameras have to be avoided. They see shop assistants as people, as competitors. And then the final goal is getting through those security barriers with their trophy, in this case, a bar of chocolate. It's not often for the chocolate, it's for the experience. So Jack said by interviewing people and deconstructing these stories, you can start to understand the subtleties of things that, that motivate people for thrill. And so this is where I proposed my idea for reverse engineering thrill. My proposal back in 2003 was to interview people who made their own thrilling experiences, then to deconstruct these experiences, so uh, pull them apart, live with their stories, try and understand the various mechanisms, the psychological mechanisms that were, were going on, categorise all of those, and then use that as a blueprint for being able to design new thrilling experiences. And over a year, I interviewed 50 people about their own thrilling experiences. Everything from an extreme knitter, somebody who's doing illegal whitewater rafting, even a secret cross-dresser agreed to give me an interview. And it took me 12 months to pull apart all these interviews, and I published two booklets. Now, in the booklets, in the taxonomy of thrill, I talk about the components of thrilling experiences. As somebody might want to design or engineering a thrilling experience, what can we use? I talk about uh, items that are sensational, or things that are spectacular, or things that uh, uh, challenge or promote power and control, or things that are to do with uh, value and, and the way we value ourselves, or the way that society values us, and things that also reward the proliferation of life in general, whether it's sating hunger, quenching thirst. In fact, lots of these things have happened right here in the Royal Institution's own auditorium. Sensational things, spectacular things have been happening here for, you know, for tens of years, hundreds of years. And in the thrilling designs, what I do is take that taxonomy and start to design and create new proposals for thrilling experiences. Uh, for example, Take Control is uh, where a series of passengers are on motion simulators and one by one they have to take control of a remote control aeroplane as the pilot is taken sick. And this book, and I also look at the design of a new restaurant as well. But it's in the taxonomy of thrill, in the appendix, that something unusual happened. I started to think about thrill in terms of engineering, in terms of quantities, in terms of the kind of physics equations that I remember uh, coming through university. And the fascinating thing was that most of the people I interviewed were very articulate about talking about their experiences in the terms of the emotions they're experiencing. Now, you can reduce 
most emotions to two dimensions. It's a very simplistic way to understand emotions, but it, it, it's a very useful way to start thinking about them. There are two components. The first one is arousal. That's our body being pumped up and ready for action. Um, it's very much associated with adrenaline, very much associated with thrill, usually. But the other component is valence, or the hedonistic tone, which, um, which is just a scientific term for pleasure, whether we like something or not, something which is much more subjective. And if you look at uh, a graph of emotions, so basically if you plot arousal against valence, all human emotions could be plotted on this graph. If you've got high valence and high levels of arousal, you've got excitement. If you've got low levels of arousal and, and displeasure, sort of low levels of valence, you've got sort of boredom in there. But this is just a snapshot in time. Nobody experiences the world in this way. Human emotions aren't just a single moment. In fact, if you look at the way that arousal and pleasure varies in all of us throughout our lives, it's a much more complicated world. Our emotions are in constant flux, pleasure and arousal are all over the place. We can even experience mixed emotions where we flip between one state and another. I noticed in all the, in all the interviews that I conducted with my interviewees, um, they all reported that they were thrilled when they experienced a massive and large increase in valence and arousal. That's, it's got to be big, it's got to be fast. So a large increase in pleasure and arousal, a very quick increase in valence and arousal, you'll feel this fantastic feeling of euphoria, this delicious sense and warmth that you get from a thrilling experience. So now I'd started to play with this idea of a formula. I thought, well, maybe these quantities, we can actually start to measure them. When we're aroused, our body's autonomic nervous system becomes activated. Our pupils dilate. Our heartbeat starts to quicken. Um, we start to breathe faster and sh more shallow. And we can monitor all these things because they're all triggered by micro-fluctuations and electrical activity. So there are lots of medical monitoring techniques we can use. Uh, but pleasure's much more difficult. In fact, you'll notice on one of my test subjects here, she's wearing electrodes on her face. The face is made up of 43 different muscle groups. Any combination of these, can ex we can express different emotional states. The two muscle groups I'm most interested in when looking at thrill, and the ones that I tend to monitor, are the zygomaticus major, which are the muscle group across, uh, the, uh, around the mouth, which are associated with pleasure, and the corrugator supercilii, which are the frown muscles above the face. And these give a very good indication of levels of pleasure when people are immersed in, in, in an experience. And this science was really pioneered by Duchenne de Boulogne in the 19th century. Duchenne famously conducted experiments on patients in uh, mental hospitals, uh, essentially electrifying their different muscle groups on their face to see any combination of which he could actually recreate quite believable emotional states. And there's a, a fantastic book of all of these photographs. In fact, even Darwin used... Duchenne's photographs in his book, The Expressions of Emotions in Man and Animals. Um, although Darwin's editor asked him to remove the electrodes of torture from, from, the, from the images before he could publish it. And then we fast forward now to the 1970s and we get the scientist Paul Ekman who starts to uh, formalise this scientific process. Uh, he created the facial action coding system where he'd have hundreds 
of researchers sat at desks looking frame by frame at videos, manually marking up muscle groups to say, yeah, there's a bit of a smile here, a bit of a frown here. And they would be able to build up these tables of emotional states of people, either through photographs or video analysis. And now fast forward to the 1990s, when we're getting computer vision, people, computer scientists, using video to look at the various muscle groups on the face and be able to determine in real time the changing emotional states of people in front of the camera. Now, Darwin was heavily criticised for comparing human expressions to those in the animal kingdom, particularly towards primates, as you can see here in this cartoon, being lampooned for his work. But our facial expressions aren't the only things we share with the primate world, with our primate cousins. You'll notice here Charles Darwin's grabbing a branch with his foot. Now, when the body's autonomic nervous system becomes fired up, there's another organ which comes into play, and that's the skin. Uh, we start to become a little bit sweaty. And in evolutionary terms, that's supposed to have helped us to be able to either swing through the forest towards our prey or actually to be able to evade danger. It's very much the, the flight or fight response. And this idea of gripping onto things, you can see when you start to study people in fairgrounds. People really do hang on for dear life. When they're on a ride, they've no idea what's going to happen. They grip on. And this is why the idea of a white-knuckle ride comes on, because our instinct is to grab hold of things. But there is a sweet spot when you're talking about creating something which is novel and something which is create something which is scary like a ride. Just how fast should a ride actually go? And here again, I'll turn to some... Um, to a scientist from the 1950s, uh, Donald Hebb's optimum level of arousal theory. Again, this has been superseded, but it's a nice, simple way to understand what's going on. If we think about a ride, like the, the roundabout, which is going round and round, how fast does a fairground showman have to make that ride? Well, it turns out there's a sweet spot. The novel stimulus is how fast the ride is going around in a circle, our amount of arousal, the benefit we're getting from that, increases the faster the ride goes. But we reach a point where we go, this feels nice. Gets a little bit faster, you go, oh, I don't quite like this so much. So our pleasure starts to diminish. The arousal we're getting from it starts to diminish. And that profile is different for every single person. But generally, you can get, for example, at Alton Towers, you can find something that will work for about the 95th percentile of people. But with novelty... And here's the rub. There's always the sense of perceived danger. Just as the Edwardians thought that their arms and legs might fly off if they went above five miles an hour on a steam train, so do people who are going on fairground rides. They don't know what's going to happen to them. That's almost part of the pleasure of what's going on. And if we actually get to a speed where the perceived risk exceeds the reward of arousal we get, people go, I want to get off. It suddenly becomes very scary. It becomes very overwhelming. But that's only the perceived risk. If you actually look at the genuine risk that's going on on a ride, it's often a lot lower. And there's this grey area that at theme parks, particularly on rides that are perceived to be scary, that you make them feel as though they're 
they're going to make you scared or something bad's going to happen, but actually you're incredibly safe. And it's in this sort of grey area that a lot of rides and a lot of ride designers will operate. Now, when you're working with computer scientists and psychologists designing experiments for rides, this is an area they're very afraid of because there are ethical implications. Imagine designing a science experiment where you're allowed to scare the bejesus out of people. Um, imagine getting that through an ethics committee. Uh, we've tried. Well, and, <laughs> and, we, and we have managed to do it. And there is a, a paper, a journal paper, if you're interested, that I wrote with colleagues, former colleagues at the University of Nottingham, the communications of the ACM, where we talk about the ethics of what's going on in these, in, in these moments. And it turns out it's quite simple. When you go to a theme park or a fairground, there is an unwritten contract as you go into that space. It's never talked about, but you are willing to be challenged. You say, take me into this grey zone. I'm willing for you to, to expose me to unusual experiences. But ultimately, I have the responsibility to make sure that you're safe. And so we all know. So this grey area is very, very interesting. So going back to the, the sweaty hands, the sweaty feet... In fact, our feet are just as sweaty as our hands. Um, we have, on our hands and feet, we have a greater density of sweat pores than anywhere else on our body. And what happens when our bodies become uh, activated, our autonomic nervous systems become activated, those pores open up very quickly. And they're almost like variable resistors. And if you can pass a very small electrical current between one finger to the next using a technique called galvanic skin response, you can actually monitor this change in resistance and you get a very reliable um, indication of the levels of arousal that somebody's experiencing. And this is something I started to build on in a piece of work I made which was called uh, the auto-portrait machine. I was fascinated by the relationship between the facial expressions of riders on fairground rides and also their peak moments of arousal. I designed a machine with a scientist from MIT, the auto-portrait machine, that only had one flash and one film in it, and it would take a photograph of riders on different photograph rides at their peak moment of arousal. In 2006, I toured with George Irvin's fairground, and I took photographs of people. It was, all, it was funded by the Wellcome Trust. The images ranged from a slight look of mania, a kind of introversion, horror, delight, a sense of bliss, and a kind of out of body. This guy was actually riding a Ferris wheel going around. They, they all, I think, quite beautifully illustrate this complexity of human emotions that we experience on the same ride and our different responses, and also the fact that our peak moment of arousal may not be well aligned with our peak moments of pleasure on these experiences. In fact, I've been perfecting my techniques to monitor people on rides. So before I was just almost taking a snapshot of their biomedical data. I've now been using new technology and video processing techniques, not only to record data from people on rides to be able to analyze their experience, but also to be able to broadcast this data live and wirelessly out for scientists to study in real time. I also use it in my creative pursuits to create new ride experiences. In this particular ride, which is called Bucking Bronco Adaptive Ride Experiment Number One, and there are several experiments, <laughs> the, the participants control the pleasure 
of a rider who they can't see. It's kind of like a really nice Milgram experiment. Um, Whereas this, this, this power and control, but the, the result is to try and create pleasure in their rider. Can you do it? And even if a computer could detect pleasure in a rider, what decisions would it make about the control of a rider's experience to be able to create more pleasure? It's actually more complicated than you might think. Not like arousal where you can just turn up the speed. In another ride, breathless, I adapt NATO gas masks to be able to monitor the breathing of riders. So the gas that's going into the person's lungs and out of the person's lungs, I monitor that, broadcast it live over Wi-Fi, and I use it to control a motor. And, if you can, and that motor powers a swing. If you can breathe in harmony with that swing at its resonant frequency, in and out, you're going to put more energy into that swing, and the swing gets higher and higher and higher, until you start to get scared, and then you start to hyperventilate, and then you start to put less energy into the swing. And I was interested in creating a self-equalizing ride, a state of equilibrium that we might get, so every rider's maximum peak would be different. So it was a ride that would adjust to individuals. Sounds great, until your experience is controlled by a masked stranger sat right next to you. <laughs> but let's get back to the science of roller coasters. I was asked by the BBC to do a survey of all, well, the majority of rides in the UK um, to find out which of those rides for one of their presenters, it was Andy from Blue Peter, which one of those rides was going to be the most thrilling. We went on many, many rides. And it turns out that this ride here called Rage, it's at Southend, um, it's an adventure island. Has anybody been on Rage at Southend? Actually, yeah, quite a few. Okay. Now, you know that this ride is, um, it wins, it scores the highest thrill factor. Not because it's the highest, not because it's the fastest or it has the most loops. It's because of its very small footprint and it's called a Eurofighter-style ride made by a company in Germany called Gerschlauer by a very, very, well, a bit of a hero of mine, uh, an engineer called Werner Stengel, uh, who's now in his 80s. Now, Werner looked at um, various sites that required roller coasters and said, well, if it's a very small plot of land, what we need to do is just throw loads of roller coaster design features into this. But it's because of that density of features, even though they're not the biggest thing, they're happening time and time again, very quick, rapid succession. And that's the thing that creates these progressively more intense moments of thrill that are all backed up against each other. But places like Alton Towers and Thorpe Park are often very dissatisfied when I award them my thrill factor rating. Uh, in fact, Rage only scored 14% on the Walker, Walker thrill factor rating. And it's actually not a bad score when I tell people what's actually going on. If you remember back to the physiology of what happens when we become thrilled, we need this rapid and large change in emotional state to create a moment of thrill. But if we stay at that high emotional state, we're not being thrilled. We need the change. So you need to reset again. And so you get this attack and decay profile that comes up. And there is a theoretical maximum, which we've still yet to validate. The theoretical maximum, we believe, is around 20% that might be achievable for any thrilling situation. So 14% isn't bad. And particularly when you think about 
the modern combustion engine, which the thermal efficiency of an engine in, in turning the chemical potential energy into motive power is around 20%. And so having a roller coaster that can turn potential energy of height into emotional work being around 20% seems quite feasible. Well, let's just focus on one feature, one ride feature. Can we make that better? So one ride feature that appears in Werner Stengel's uh, rage at South End is the inverting loop. Um, how good can we make it? Well, the first vert, uh, inverting loop was started to appear in the 19th century, and this particular ride, the flip-flap centrifugal railway, appeared in Coney Island at the end of the 19th century. It was a perfect circular inverting loop. Uh, riders would come hurtling down, whip around, and out the back. Um, it was a very popular ride, very thrilling. But there was a problem. As riders were hitting and entering into that circular loop, the centripetal force that was being created exceeded 12G. Now, people were coming off that ride experiencing very severe whiplash. And there were nurses permanently stationed on that ride towards the end of its life. Bear in mind that the health and safety executive now don't allow any rides beyond 5G. Now, just as an aside, this wasn't the only ride at, at Coney Island that had nurses stationed. In fact, the world's first baby incubator appeared at Coney Island as a side attraction where members of the public could file past and they would pay to see these tiny newborn babies in these incubators. And this is the way that the developments in, in handling um, premature births was developed. It was funded through entertainment. So back to our loop the loop. I was hmm, privileged, delighted, a little scared to be invited by an ITV science show to design what they wanted to be the world's first inverting playground slide. Would it be possible... <laughs> Would it be possible to make a slide where somebody could come down, whip around... When I'd seen the flip-flap radar, I was thinking, uh, uh, railway, I thought, yeah, of course you can. But the key is, can we do it safely, obviously? Yeah. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about my approach to this and generally how roller coasters work. We have potential energy at the top. This is basically, we need height. This is, creates our potential energy. As the rider comes hurtling down the slide, that potential energy is converted into kinetic energy. We might get a little bit of loss through coefficient of friction and the material science in there. And that kinetic energy gives us the velocity we need to be able to create the centripetal force. So as we enter into that first curve, you see centripetal force is, is proportional to the square of the velocity we're going in, and also inversely proportional to the radius. So essentially you'll get higher g-forces if you have a smaller radius, and if you're going much faster. But of course, we can't go too fast, we can't go beyond 5g. And there's another problem. If we have a very large circle with very low g, as you start to uh, climb up the backside of that curve, we start to gain potential energy again. We start to lose kinetic energy. We start to lose speed. If you go too slow, the centripetal force, as you come over the top, won't be able to combat the gravity. You'll fall out of the slide. Now, 
The test we did, um, this footage was never shown on TV. Um, the ride got pulled. Um, we, um, well, yeah, there was a... <laughs> Needless to say, our tests were done during the day. Um, in the middle of the night, in a freezing cold aircraft hangar, the coefficients of friction have a habit of changing. I wasn't present when the, uh, the executives from ITV came to check the ride. They weren't happy. They pulled it. But here's footage from a ride test that was done during the day. There we go. <laughs> so it is possible. It is possible. I wish people weren't so risk-averse. It's terrible. Uh, and so, actually, just going back here, this particular technique that we actually used on the slide, and this is actually, sorry, the, the most important thing about this particular design, is the way we actually achieved the loop was to use a large radius as we enter into the, the, the loop the loop. The very large radius gives us a relatively small centripetal force. We start continuing up, but as we start to run out of potential energy, we decrease the radius as we go over the top, and we flip people around, and then we open up the slide again, the radius again, and come out. And this is a signature uh, clothoid loop that you'll see on many roller coasters. It's a very signature teardrop shape you get on a roller coaster. And this is something that Coney Island found out when the flip-flap uh, flip centrifugal train was closed at the end of the 19th century. The ride that replaced it was the loop the loop, which now encompassed this teardrop clothoid loop shape. And it had another safety feature as well. Um, it featured under friction wheels. As you can see in the patent on the right-hand side there, um, it was painted by... Um, uh, yeah, Miller, thank you. Thanks, yeah. It's painted by Miller. And, in fact, there are over 100 patents by Miller still in existence on roller coasters today. But the under-friction wheels are the things that mean that you don't need to go quite so fast as you're going around the loop. You're not going to fall out, because even if you're going very slowly, you're going to hang there, because there's another set of wheels on the opposite side of the track. It seems simple when you say it like that. But, but that's just now working in looking at rides in one dimension. Uh, a single feature, which is going forwards and doing a loop-the-loop. -loop. Um, there are many ways our bodies can detect the sensation of movement and speed. Uh, one of the primary um, organs that does this is the, the vestibular system, which sits in the inner ear of humans. And the vestibular system is very much like a, a computer games controller, like a Nintendo Wii controller. It's got the semicircular canals, three semicircular canals that can detect rotational acceleration in three dimensions around X, Y, and Z. It's also got otoliths, these straight channels that can detect linear acceleration forwards and backwards. And when you look at Werner Stengel's Cobra Roll, which he invented, you can see just how clever Werner Stengel is in exploiting nearly every single aspect of the vestibular system inside our ears. Now, when I started to become interested in the vestibular system, uh, I was also quite frustrated that the human is now becoming the limiting factor in the design of roller coasters. Um, so I was thinking, what, what can I do? Uh, I'd read about a technique called galvanic 
vestibular stimulation. And there were scientists who were stimulating people with damaged vestibular systems by essentially passing electrical currents across people's heads. And if you apply the right frequency, the right amount of current, you can actually make people's vestibular systems believe that they're leaning more to the left or more to the right, that they're experiencing g-forces that aren't actually there. I proposed to Merlin Entertainment, because if you think about rides, they cost like 13 to 20 million pounds to create. So a ride that is limited by g-force, maybe we can do something else. Maybe if we can attach galvanic vestibular systems to people on rides, we have a system that can monitor the g-forces. When a rider might be experiencing 5G, we can add a couple of extra g with galvanic uh, vestibular stimulation. Maybe you feel like you're doing 7G. Now, at the time, I actually got warned off by a neurologist who said I might uh, create inner ear damage. Um, and I wish I hadn't, because there's a patent being taken out by Samsung, who are now using galvanic vestibular stimulation in virtual reality to give this extra dimension of movement in virtual worlds. But there were other ideas. Thought Park also asked me um, if I could propose something for their new hotel that was being opened. I was interested, I mean, what do you do in a hotel? You sleep most of the time. Uh, what can I do when people are sleeping? Well, I was quite interested in the state of dreaming and the way that humans um, incorporate sensory stimuli in their local environment into their dreams, particularly during this state of rapid eye movements during um, uh, REM sleep. And I thought, well, how about if we make a bed that's a motion simulator. So people have been on rides during the day. They kind of are processing what they've just done. Maybe if they go to bed and we record the movements of these rides they've just been on and create very subtle movements in their beds, they'll be able to dream about roller coasters. <laughs> now, it didn't get made. I mean, this feels like the story of my life. It didn't get made, but I did start working with Middlesex University on the design of motion simulators. In fact, the motion simulator we've created is now so cheap, it's about a quarter of the price of any other motion system on the market, and it's so easy to make. We've got secondary school children making these as engineering and science projects, making them in, them in, making them in their workshop, using them to code and, and create simulations on them, and also a way of exploring the vestibular systems. Uh, and in fact, this year, we're making one specifically for Thought Park for wheelchair users, because we're interested in people going to the theme park. One member of the family may be disadvantaged, other members will go on the ride, but now that person in a wheelchair can have at least some idea of what that roller coaster feels like, and the family unit together can leave the theme park having had a shared experience of that vestibular stimulation. But back then, um, my interest in rapid eye movement and being able to detect sleep had actually evolved into a more deeper fascination with neurological feedback, and particularly with the design and, and availability of new technology that was able to monitor the brain. In fact, this was a 14-channel uh, EEG brain monitor that I was using with View Cinema and Real D invited me to do an experiment to look at the relative merits 
uh, and the levels of engagement of an audience as they watch 2D films as opposed to 3D films. They wanted to quantify in, in value just how more valuable the 3D film was. But I thought, hmm, well, I'm designing a motion platform. I've kind of got brain data. What should I do with it? And I thought, how about I make a ride that allows you to ride your, ride your own brain data? And this was an idea I came up with and was funded by Nesta back in 2016. The idea was that the rider would climb to the top of this podium. They'd put on an EEG brain monitoring cap. We'd start to gather their brain data live and wirelessly. We'd put on a VR headset on our rider. And what they'd see emerge in front of them was a representation of their live brain data. We were making choices about the world that was emerging in front of them, about the music they were listening to. And they would go twisting and tumbling through this virtual world created by their brain data, surrounded by a massive light show and music and an audience of 100 people watching them. It was a massive spectacle, a celebration to brain monitoring. It was called neurosis. It was the world's first brain monitoring thrill ride. But this is all getting very complicated. Brain monitoring, motion platforms, VR. There was something simpler going on here which resonated with something I'd read. I, I'm kind of guilty of reading very, very old scientific papers. Uh, this one here was in uh, the Psychological Review in 1895. It reviewed a ride that had been designed in 1893 and patented by a chap called Lake. Um, it's called the Haunted Swing. Now, what people would do is they'd, they'd come into a, a room like this, an auditorium like this. They'd sit in a gondola, look like a swing. The room, they'd look around, it all looked very normal. There was a pram, most rooms got a pram, uh, which was actually glued down. The, the vase was actually glued down. People in the room didn't know all these things were glued down. And then the gondola would start to swing very gently backwards and forwards. But unbeknownst to the people on the gondola, the room was also on a pivot, and the room would start to contra-rotate backwards and forwards as well. And it gave the illusion, the perception, that you were feeling these physical forces of swinging, but you felt like you were swinging much further than you actually were, to such an extent that they made people believe that they were doing a full loop-the-loop. -loop. And I think this particular psychologist reported uh, a feeling of Gone, goneness, goneness in, in, in the riders, and some reports of, uh, uh, put it subtly, um, yes, some gentlemen losing their dinner over this. That was it. Um, now, the effects uh, intrigued me, but I thought today, well, what could I do? We've now got, rather than having the restraints of having to create a whole room and mechanical linkages, we've now got virtual reality where we can squirt images directly into people's eyes. So I wondered, what can I do with a very simple, a millennia-old playground swing and a VR headset? I thought, if I could monitor the forces that are being experienced by people on the ride and determine the amplitude and the angle that the swing was at in real time, maybe I could first start to recreate the haunted swing effect. So I created a ride which was shown at Sheffield Dockfest in 2016. The ride was called Oscillate. I created a facsimile, a recreation of the gallery space, and my riders, one by one, got on the ride, and the room did start to rotate a lot further than they imagined. 
and they all started to scream. Um, but I didn't stop there. I was fascinated. I thought, I remember Hitchcock in his film Vertigo. You remember the, the film where the, uh, the floor drops away, you get this pull-zoom effect with the, with the camera technique. So I started to drop the floor away as people were swinging as well. They screamed even louder. So this was kind of getting interesting. But again, if we think back to Werner Stengel and our vestibular system, I'm only now recreating something that the Victorians were doing with mechanical linkages. They were only playing with rotation about one axis, the vestibular system. There are five more axes to play with. It's like, a, it's like a, suddenly a child's playground has, has opened up to me. And I started to think, what could I do in those other five dimensions if I limit myself to somebody swinging backwards and forwards on the swing and I understand the changing forces that are happening on that swing? Could I imagine new experiences, new movements that made sense of these forces on a swing. Over the last three years, I've been touring my experimental creations, and, but the experience we created, there were four of them. The first one was called High Roller, where as you're on the swing, you believe you're inside a giant wheel on a ratchet. As you swing forwards, it catches. As you swing backwards, it rolls forwards, and you're putting more and more energy into this rolling wheel. The second movement, which I call jellyfish, when you're on the ride, I make the forces make you feel as though you're a jellyfish ascending through the deep abyss. The third ride, I actually make the movement 180 degrees out of phase on the swing and also make you feel that you're doing a parabola, almost doing parkour, bouncing from building top to building top. And the final movement was called walker. You feel that you're inside a giant lumbering robot walking through a cityscape. Now, I was told by scientists, some scientists, psychologists, that I shouldn't be messing in this area. But I listened to them once before. Uh, they said that you will make people most certainly sick if you're giving them visual stimulation, visual imagery that doesn't match their body's experience. But I, th I think of the brain as being very elastic, that there are limitations, there are some things that will snap, and yes, you've got problems, but the brain has a great capacity to make sense of very abstract information. So that's what this exploration is all about. What capacity has the brain got to being fooled into thinking that these dif different motions are happening? And here's just one response to one of the rides. <laughs> and the cue just grows. When people see people screaming like that, the cue just grows. When I was preparing for this talk, I was also looking back in my notebooks to look at, well, the ideas I had, to see what kind of inspired me. Uh, a lot of the time, my calculations are done by hand. Even though I was trained as an engineer, I still use computing. A lot of the, the ideas are often done by hand. And this particular spread from my notebook was from as I was developing Walker, that machine where sort of lumbering through the city. I was trying to make sense of the forces that people were feeling, uh, not only in 
and trying to work out in six dimensions this uh, sort of forwards, backwards, up, down, and rotation about all of those, about the different movements I could, could create. But it wasn't just the movement. Remember, on a, on a roller coaster, you haven't just got the acceleration forces, you've got the change in the acceleration forces that, that are used to create experience. And it's not just the change in the acceleration forces, it's the change in the change. It's called, it, and they're, they're termed the jerk, the snap, crackle, and pop, the more you differentiate. Uh, it's, it becomes very complex. So I was able to do craft some very basic movements. But it has just made me think, given this talk, that some of the explorations I've been doing trying to create simple rules to create movements, I kind of seen in places like uh, in Conway's Game of Life, where he created very simple rules, and these movements, these, these um, small kind of like digital beasts emerged from these rule sets that he created. But I'm most inspired by DeepMind, Google's DeepMind, the use of artificial intelligence. I think that the, the world of, of understanding movement and its relationship to emotions is so complex that maybe we need to use artificial intelligence to be able to design the next level of rides in the future, which are going to thrill us. In fact, what you're seeing with DeepMind is they only gave it two legs, these articulated legs, and this uh, biped learnt to be able to run over obstacles. So it has the capacity to learn. But it's not just, uh, my explorations aren't just academic. I'm also relating my work, very much as Faraday was relating his work, to, to lighthouses and practical applications. I'm very interested in the practical application of what I make. And now with virtual reality, if I'm creating rides in virtuality that people can ride on any swing in the world, I'm able to ship out thrill rides over the world wide web that anybody in the world can download onto a headset, get onto a playground swing. And it can be big business for the digital economy in the UK. So there is an impact, there's a real interest in, in business about creating these kind of thrilling experiences in this way. And to come bang up to date, my explorations now are quite naturally moving back towards the fairground, where I was looking at playground swings, now looking at swing boats. When I visited Dreamland, and as in one of the tweets that the Royal Institution said, it is the 100th anniversary of the scenic railway, the UK's first roller coaster. When I visited Dreamland, talking to them about my ideas with a uh, swing boat, um, I also started looking at other rides. Now, the fairground is, and, the, and amusement parks uh, have a long tradition of being the first places that public would experience technology for the first time, whether it's cinematic projection, electricity, light bulbs. And it seems quite fitting that this work that I'm doing now returns back to the fairground to reach an audience who wants to play with the, the developments that science is able to bring to them. I was originally trained as an aeronautical engineer, and uh, I have a particular fascination with fairground rides that are inspired by aviation. You just have a look at uh, Maxim's captive flying machine, which is still an example at Blackpool. Has everybody ever been on Maxim's flying machine? Probably not. Oh, yeah, a couple. And it's still quite thrilling, and it's amazing, but Maxim, if... He wasn't just famous for inventing a machine gun. He actually was a keen aviator. And his, um, uh, his explorations of flight and his success in, in powered flight predates the Wright brothers. And 
the Wright brothers actually credited him for inspiring them to progress their work. But Maxim's flying, captive flying machine was designed not to fly. It was designed to inspire and excite the public about the potential of powered flight. In fact, Maxim used it to raise funding to fund his research. And that's kind of a model that I'm interested in. Now, Lee Early was an aviator. He designed dive bombers, or sorry, this particular ride was called the dive bomber, but it was drawn from his experiences of creating uh, dogfight simulators for the, uh, for the aviation. And he started touring this ride, again, borrowing engineering, taking it into entertainment. But the one ride that, that excites me the most, it's called the Twister, or, or the Scrambler. It's still around. It, it celebrates its 80th anniversary this year, or the patent was filed by Harris in 1940. It was made, it was only made possible at the time from the use of lightweight aircraft-grade aluminium. And what it has is a central spindle in the middle, three arms coming out, and at the end of each of those arms, there are four carts, which also spin around. The thing that interests me the most is Harris's patent. In his patent, he talks about the relationship between the mechanical gearing of that ride and the emotional effect he thinks it's going to have on his passengers. These sinusoidal serpentine, serpentine paths that are possible create different emotional experiences. And it's this ride that I'm interested in developing virtual reality experiences for. Because there are lots of these rides around. New rides cost 13 to 20 million pounds to make. There are lots of old rides which are still around. And this is where my interest is. In fact, there are 200 of these rides available in the UK. And any fairground showman who owns this ride anywhere in the world should be able to download our experiences, put them on their own VR headsets, and give their audience a very different experience. In fact, I talked to the fairground showman who was the first to import this particular ride into the UK in the early 1960s. He talked about his excitement of people's response to this ride as they got on it. And his eyes twinkled when I told him about my plans to be able to augment and amplify their experiences using virtual reality. So, we're at the end. I say in conclusion, um, thrill is the most basic and fundamental of all human emotions. It rewards the very persistence of life on Earth. To feel thrilled is to feel alive. It's a super important quality. It doesn't just exist at fairgrounds and theme parks. Vestiges of thrill exist in surprise birthday parties, in extreme knitting, in parties. You don't have to be an adrenaline junkie to appreciate thrill. As new scientific discoveries are made, I enjoy using those to bring a new focus, new understanding to thrill. As new technology emerges, I enjoy using those new technologies to understand and monitor thrill and to be able to create new ways of people to enjoy and have thrilling entertainment. As society and culture shifts, it brings new opportunities. It brings new challenges to making and designing thrilling experiences. I just can't wait to see what's going to happen in the next five years. Thank you. So, Professor Walker, thank you for thrilling all of us. 
And I think that we're probably going to have some questions here from, I'm thinking maybe some of the younger members of our audience who might be feeling slightly less woozy about the whole <laughs> experience than I am. Have we got some questions for Professor Walker? So I just wanted to ask, there are two questions actually. The first one is, so dopamine, it induces thrill. Yeah. So is it possible to bring out dopamine as a specific thing and this may sound weird but as shots and give humans shots of dopamine th <laughs> so they feel thrill? Oh gosh. <laughs> um, yes. So dopamine in itself doesn't um, create thrill. It's, obviously, it's only the pleasure part, and obviously there's the arousal part that we need. But there is, I can't remember the name of it, but there is a cocktail of drugs, as you might imagine, out there that people who take cocaine uh, can give them high levels of pleasure, and speed will give people the levels of arousal. So they're illegal to do, but people do experiment with them. Whether there are legal highs... It's a very interesting question. I'll look into it. <laughs> and another question. Yeah, my other question was, is it th uh, people's thrill affected, for example, if there was a random drop of a slide fr from mid-air versus a place in a country setting versus a place where there's lots of random metal shards sticking out or a really dark place? <laughs> Does it change? Oh, oh absolutely, yeah. I think the... Um, so particularly when I've now started working in, in VR, there's, there's also the uh, uh, near, near objects create this sense of, uh, it's called parallax, which is where we get our visual cues about how fast we're moving. So if you're looking at computer gaming, look out for objects that are very close to you because the designers are using those to create, to amplify the sensations of movement. But also if you go on a ride such as uh, the big one at Blackpool Pleasure Beach, you'll find you go underneath uh, features of the ride, they're called head chopper effects, where you think, oh my God, I'm gonna have my head pulled off, you know, it's gonna strike this thing. But actually you're very safely far away from it. And um, the ride that you saw uh, that I showed Rage at Southend-on-Sea, which is exactly the same ride as uh, Saw at Thorpe Park. And Saw has those very big, sharp uh, teeth uh, as you're coming down that vertical drop where you think that they're actually going to rip you apart. So they are... Um, I like to think of it as like composing music. So I, I've shown you something which is very almost like playing the piano with one hand. But you can... When you start thinking about creating thrilling experiences. It's almost like a symphony. You can start to bring in features and, as you're saying, make, uh, start to overlay different thr thrilling effects. So, yes, very much the context is pretty much everything. Thank it, you. It sounds to me like you might have an apprentice in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> See me afterwards. There's a young lady with her hand up here and then there's a young gentleman in the middle at the front. Hello. And then we've got somebody so, here. Um, Hello. What drew you in to know what like thrill was all about? Like, what was it special from doing any other like type of neuroscience or discovery? What was it? How come you spent so like m much time, effort, and you put you did so many experiments to just focus on one thing? Yeah. Like, how would that benefit to any other people? Ah, how would it? <laughs> I, I think there, there is the. Oh, I was thinking. Uh, it was such a nice question up until that point. Um, <laughs> I'll come on to the benefits, a very good question. So um, how I got into it was uh, originally trained as an engineer, 
then uh, moved into industrial design, uh, and I started making very large mechanical installations. I had some in, uh, interactive exhibits at the Science Museum in London, but also I was making very large mechanical sculptures for galleries. And I often watched people who were engaging with these very large engineered mechanical uh, structures and interacting with them. And I was just fascinated by watching their facial expressions and how they were excited by engaging with these interactive experiences. And I realised I knew nothing about how to control their emotional engagement. I mean, we kind of have an idea that if you do this and something goes bang, people are going to go, wow. But the idea that, um, that let's say, Hitchcock, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, great um, uh, storyteller, filmmaker, uh, had was able to control people's emotional experience. Theatre directors, choreographers, are able to control these emotional experiences. I wanted to be able to do that. And so by taking almost a sabbatical uh, time out of what I was doing, I took a year to try and understand the psychology behind it. And once I'd made that connection between the psychology and the physiology and how it related to engineering and our built world, I realised, well, everything, it was. I wouldn't say it was quite like the Matrix where I could see everything, but, but things started to look very different to me. And once I started to look at one scientific discipline, biomedical monitoring, the next, as soon as neurology became accessible, I thought, I've got to look at that. So it, it was like following, uh, following my interests at that point, particularly finding people who would fund my interests as well. <laughs> but your question about value is actually a very important one, one that I get asked quite a lot. Uh, there are two answers to that. One is entertainment is very big business. So when we're looking at the economy, uh, the world's economy or the UK's economy, we export entertainment. Uh, the entertainment industry is big money. There's employment. There's lots of financial and social benefit to creating entertainment. But the aspect that really excites me most is to do with play and well-being. In the Western world, uh, our environments are so risk-averse that we very rarely get to sense thrill. We very rarely get to sense this feeling of alive. Playgrounds are being closed down. We've become very risk-averse, so we very rarely feel alive. So I'm mostly interested in promoting the aspect of play and exploration, which is a really important thing to do with mental well-being. Thank you, thank you so much for making it easy to understand. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, and well done. I'm just looking, where am I looking? <laughs> there we go. Hi, hello. Um, the question I wanted to ask was, um, what was your favourite thing you have done so far? <laughs> the favourite thing I have done so far? Ah. It's giving a lecture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, giving a lecture at the Royal Institution. Actually, you know what? Getting, receiving that letter was actually really exciting. I actually thought it was somebody else. Um, I think I, I made a, an experience with um, the friend. I actually don't know if he's in the audience. Oh, there he is, there. So, George, I often work with George, and George comes from a theatre background. And we made a ride called Airphoria, which was um, part theatre and uh, part ride and people went into a recreation of an aircraft cabin they didn't quite know what was going to happen to them but they were all wearing harnesses and one by one as uh, things started to go wrong in the aircraft they got clipped onto a wire it was actually a zip wire and they got thrown out the back and, and watching people's facial expressions as we did that to them that was my favourite thing <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you
cool man. Okay. Um, I actually have two questions. <laughs> so, have you ever considered to do um like a three hundred and sixty um like um like loop with a drop in the ground? With a drop in the ground, a three hundred and sixty degree. So let me get this right. You're going around 360, and then you go down afterwards? Oh. Oh. You know, uh, I don't think that's ever been done before. So you go full loop. and then th There's a ride, I think, Nemesis at uh, Alton Towers, which has some sort of underground cavernish bits. But I quite like the simplicity of what you're saying, because I like those rides at Coney Island where there was just one loop in it. But if you had one loop that went around and you just didn't know where you were going to go, it was sh straight down the plug hole. Uh, <laughs> Sounds terrifying. Uh, I mean, it's on, it's on camera now. You thought of it. Damn. What's your other question? One last question. And then, <laughs> no, Science Alive, there's this virtual reality. Um, it's like where you sit on a seat and then you put on the VR um, like glasses and then you, um, the chair is rocking. Did you create that too? Yes. <laughs> and I have to say, all my colleagues at Middlesex University, there's quite a large team, and in fact, in any of these uh, rides and experiences I've shown you, there are always tens of people working on it, scientists, engineers, designers. I might have a great idea, but if it can't be made... Yeah, so, yes, I did, but there's so many people involved in engineering that. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. We, we'll have to draw it to a close now. <laughs> Professor Walker, thank you so much for a thrilling and slightly, just occasionally slightly nauseating um, <laughs> presentation for some of us. It was, it was a pleasure to have you and how lovely that you've inspired all these young people to think about engineering and um, neurology, psychology, all the different aspects that you brought into our talk. So that's Brilliant. a real bonus for us. Would thank you, you all join me in thanking Professor Walker? <laughs> That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please leave us a rating and review. And if you really liked it, then you can support us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You can watch videos of our talks on our YouTube channel and get tickets for upcoming events and live streams on our website, rigb.org. All the links you need are in the episode description.